So we're going back to the book of Colossians after being in 1 Timothy for a while. Colossians is a book written to the, a small church in Colossae to combat false teaching, a, a philosophy that had all types of tributaries running into it. Uh, it involved angel worship, it involved magical words, it involved rules keeping and regulations. Uh, all came together to form what we call loosely the Colossian heresy. Uh, and this is, is what Paul is seeking to combat. Um, and, and so he says in chapter 2, verse 4, he talks about this teaching and he calls it plausible, fine-sounding teaching. Listen to verse 4, chapter 2. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments or fine-sounding teaching. Um, these arguments were all about man's ability to work himself into the favor of God. And these fine-sounding teachings all undercut the glory and the majesty and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ and the gospel of grace. These fine-sounding, plausible arguments crash to the ground when you understand chapter 1, verse 13, where the scripture says, that Christ has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Fine sounding arguments. And one of the things they talked about, they said this is a, a religion they said that is filled with mystery. And Paul says, well, I'll tell you what the ultimate mystery is. The ultimate mystery has been fully revealed and it is Christ in you the hope of glory. And let's look at how he uses the word mystery in a couple of places. He says in chapter 1, verse 25, he says, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Again in chapter 2, he says in verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and of knowledge. So this, this mystery. So the, the plausible arguments always started with man. And what must man do to be made right with the God who is there? And in every world religion, listen, every world religion is all about balance, balance scales. Good deeds outweighing bad deeds. A few examples. Our Islamic friends believe that if you are an observant Muslim and embrace the five pillars of Islam, which includes that they are, uh, the, the creed that says there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet, giving of alms to the poor, praying five times a day towards Mecca, observing the fast month of Ramadan. So for one whole month, Islamic people from sunrise to sunset do not eat or drink to show their devotion to 
Allah and to earn favor. All these things earn favor. And fifthly would be the holy pilgrimage to Mecca, the most holy city in Islam. Those are the five pillars of Islam. And if you do those, and you do those sincerely with all of your heart, then this is what happens in the end as far as going to an Islamic heaven. You come to this place of the balance, the balance scales, once again, the balance scales. Hopefully your good deeds, hopefully outweigh your bad deeds, and hopefully you may somehow make to heaven, but there's no assurance. You're always working harder and harder and harder. Hinduism, arguably the oldest world religion. There's a man who wrote a book about Hinduism, and it was, has been quoted approvingly by many Hindu teachers, and he said, after studying Hinduism for decades, he said, Hinduism is not a building that can be defined. Hinduism is a forest with many vines and branches and trees that run here and here and here. It's very difficult to define. And yet, if you try to understand Hinduism, the Hindu mind believes that there are certain paths you take, such as the path of devotion, where you study the Bhagavad Gita, for example, or the path of service or, the, or other paths. And, and, and as you do that, you fulfill some demands in your life and you come back in your next life cycle in a higher place. And then you fulfill demands and you come back and you come back and you come back until after numerous cycles of reincarnation, you are absorbed into the Godhead and you go to a place called Muksa. Um, and you become one with the eternal. So, so it's, it's, once again, it's all about what I do. Or Buddhism, which is a derivative of Hinduism. Buddhism from about 6th century BC, Gautama, Siddhartha Gautama. Uh, again, the Buddhist mind says that there are four noble truths. Life is suffering. The reason for suffering is desire. Desire can be eradicated, and the way you eradicate uh, desire is to follow the eightfold noble path, which includes uh, right thinking, right livelihood, right effort, right understanding. There, there are eight of them. And you give yourself, and as you give yourself to that, you become enlightened, and you go from transmigration of life to rebirth to rebirth to rebirth, your karma, and you're eventually absorbed into nirvana. But again, it's, it's all about self-effort. Um, I was coming home this weekend uh, from visiting my parents just one night, went up Friday and came back yesterday. They live in North Carolina, so I'm coming down I-26 on a Saturday. And as, as I'm going down I-26 on my left, coming into Charleston, going through Orangeburg, is this huge Jehovah Witness complex. And it's, it's just huge. And it was pretty full. And it broke my heart. And I thought, here are these dear people who, who really believe that God is appeased by my self-efforts. They really believe that Jesus was a created being, that he's not God, that he's just, he's just a created being, and therefore it's all up to me, the balance scale. And it's, just, it's, it's just sad. Or Mormons. Well, many of us have Mormon friends, and they make great neighbors, and great citizens, and they're patriots. And, but yet the, the Mormons believe that Christ is a created being. The Mormons believe that through self-effort, you get into heaven. So, it, see, all of these religions start with my effort, what I can do, what I'm about. It's all about I must measure up, I must do, I must be, I must fulfill, I must go forward, I must do all these things. And yet, I, I pick up this little letter written by the Apostle Paul of the Church of Colossians that's just so simple and it's so profound. 
And when it comes to any of those people, I would just read, and they're very sincere. I would just read verses 19 and 20 of chapter 1 that says this, in Christ, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Christ to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace by the blood of the cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. It's all the work of Christ. We begin and end with the revelation of all Jesus is for us. So my central thesis this morning is that the strong reality of Christ takes away fine-sounding arguments and brings thankfulness, joy, and worship into my life. And I'm going to be reading and thinking about with you Colossians 2, verses 8 through 14. Hear the scripture. Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him. Also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. This is a great passage. I mean, this is pretty good. So he starts off in verse 8, the plea. He says, see to it. Be very, very careful, church. Be very careful that no one takes you captive by philosophy, which is a broad term meaning all types of teachings, but by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition and according to the elemental spirits of the world, the spirit of this age, they all are over here as compared to the glory and majesty of Christ. See to it. That's his banner statement. Be very careful. And then he rehearses in detail. The glories of what it means to be in Christ. And this passage just sings. He, he says this in verse 9. He says, in him the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. Wow. God in the flesh in Jesus. Listen to this. Don't, don't miss this. And you, and you, believers, if you're a believer, and you have been filled in him. You've received this fullness. It's amazing. You, you've received that from him who is the head of all rule and authority, whether it's angel orders or demonic orders or human orders. He is king. And then he goes into this allegorical, metaphorical statement. It's about circumcision and baptism. There were people in Colossae, we, we would call them loosely Judaizers, who said it's fine to believe in Jesus, but you've got to observe the, the, 
the law of Moses. You've got to be circumcised, and you've got to observe feast days and fast days, and you've got to do this and that to really be on God's traveling squad, the, the main team. You've got to do these things. And Paul says, you know, this is Paul the Pharisee. Listen, Paul the Pharisee, who used to glory in circumcision, who would glory in the keeping of the law. This is Paul the rules keeper. We think Paul, who hardly approved of the, ste- the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 7, the same Paul who breathed out threats and accusations and murderous entreaties against the church, but he was saved. And this former Pharisee who used to glory in circumcision and keeping the law says, you know, you're, you're, you're right. You're right. You need to be circumcised, like these Judaizers say, but it's a circumcision done without hands. It's done without hands. It's done spiritually in your heart. He writes in Romans chapter 2, he says, you're not a Jew really outwardly, but but a real Jew is, is a person who worships in his heart. And the circumcision is internal and is by the Holy Spirit and his praise does not come from man, it comes from God. It's all about the heart. It's all about heart worship. So he says, yeah, yeah, you need to be circumcised, but it's a circumcision done without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, what Christ does in you. And he talks about baptism. And he says, you know, yeah, yeah, you need to be baptized. People talk about being baptized. He says, but the baptism you need is a water baptism, yeah, but it, it represents a deep spiritual truth. See, he says, you're, and in baptism, you're buried with him and you're raised with him. You go into the baptistry waters and you come out. You come out symbolically, your sins are washed away. You're, you're new in Christ. You go in, you come out. You go in, you come out. So he says, look, look at this metaphorical reality of who Christ is in us. And then he says this in verse 13. And you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. And God made you alive in Christ. Dead. Dead. Get it? You you were dead. And God made you alive. This is what Christ has done for us. Now, this month is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. So we're going to be talking about the Reformation a little bit as we go through this part of Colossians. So in in 1517, a, a very sincere, brilliant monk named Martin Luther started the Reformation in the backwater of Germany, small town, when he just nailed 95 Theses to the church door. A little bit about Martin Luther. Martin Luther was born in 15 and 86, 1486, 1486 he was born. On November the 10th, his daddy's name was Hans. Hans was an entrepreneur. Uh, had made a good bit of money, and he wanted his son to become an entrepreneurial who would expand his capital, and so he wanted Luther to go to law school to learn how to do things right, and so Martin Luther was going to go to law school. Very bright young man. He's going through the forest one night, returning from studies, and a 
thunderstorm rolls in and lightning and thunder fill the air and really lightning started coming down and Luther says and hit him very close to him and, and Luther uh, was a child of his times and he would, the, the people in the area worshiped a saint called Saint Anne. Saint Anne was the patron saint of miners, M-I-N-E-R-S and that was a mining district and so Luther fell to his feet and rolled under a huge tree that had fallen down, and he cried out. He said, Saint Anne, save me, and I will become a monk. And so, he was saved. And much to his father's deep chagrin, Luther felt compelled to fulfill his vow. So Luther became a member of the Augustinian order. Very sincere. He would fast for days on end. He would beat himself to drive out sin um, he would have sleepless nights. Uh, he had a, uh, his, his mentor was a man named Johann von Stoppitz, who was a wonderful man. And uh, Luther was supposed to confess his sins to his mentor because part of what uh, the medieval church believed, if you confess your sins, you earn God's favor. So Luther wanted to make sure he confessed all of his sins. So, so literally he would visit von Stoppitz numerous times every day and confess his sins. I mean, everything from whatever. And von Stoppitz just got exasperated with Luther. He said, Luther, he said, good. He, says, he said this tongue in cheek. He said, Luther, do something worth confessing, please. He said, kill your parents. Commit adultery, but you're driving me crazy. And Luther said, well, I, I just need to confess. And so Luther, he had Luther study the Bible, and Luther became a, an avid Bible student. And he came to see that we're saved, made right in God's presence by faith alone, by the finished work of Christ alone, by grace alone, to the glory of God alone, under the authority of the Bible alone. And it's, it was a, it's a wonderful story. It's a glorious story. So Luther, I'm going to give you a couple of Luther quotes. quotes. They're in, they're in the, the worship guide. But, but during this time, Luther um, was struggling with the character of God. And people would say to Luther, Luther, just love God. Just, just love him. And, and Luther said, in this very memorable quote, he, he, says, he says, love God. I didn't love God. I hated God. Because his standards were standards to which I could never, ever, ever, ever measure up. And so, so here's, here's a quote. She said, I hated the expression, the righteousness of God. For though the tra tradition and practice of all my doctors have been taught to understand that righteousness is something that is gradually given to me, I, I saw God who is just and punishes sinners. He says, but, but I, could, I could not love the righteous God, the God who punishes. I hated him. I was very displeased with God, if not in secret, blasphemy then certainly with mighty grumbling. And he goes on and says this. And, and should it not be enough for a miserable sinners, eternally damned by original sin, we're born sinners, to be oppressed by all sorts of calamity through the law of the Ten Commandments? Must God add suffering to suffering, even though the gospel and 
threatens us with his righteousness and his wrath through the gospel too. I mean, he said, I, said, I, I, I couldn't love God. He says, I, I, I hate him because I could never, ever, 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 ever measure up. And, and then he saw in the Bible that, you're, you're, that we're, we are declared righteous. It's not something that's gradually given to us. It's something that is freely given to us, boom, by faith. And this is what he says. And this is, he said, it's, it's, it's by faith alone, through the work of Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, the word alone. If I can't get it up, okay. Then he says this. This is so good. I pondered incessantly day and night until I gave heed to the context of the words, quote, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, the just shall live by faith, close quote. Then I began to understand the righteousness of God as a righteousness by which a man lives as by a gift, not that I deserve, it's given to me and it's revealed in the gospel, namely the righteousness we receive through which God justifies us by faith through his grace and mercy. Now look at this. This is one of the greatest sentences I've ever read. He says, now I felt, good, now I felt as if I had been born again, the gates had been opened and I entered paradise itself. I entered paradise itself. I saw this glorious truth. I'm saved by faith alone through the work of Christ alone. So here's my illustration. It's not a very good illustration, but I just I want you to get this. This is so beautiful. I love this. So, so it's like we have been on a pilgrimage and we're going to meet the king in his royal chambers and we've been walking cross country in a desert area for, for a week or two and no place to take a shower. And, and so we arrive at the royal chamber and the, the, the royal guards receive us and we have, uh, our hair is matted with dirt and grime and grease and sweat. And we have a beard, we haven't shaved. I'm not talking about guys now, okay? Guys, we have a beard. And, and our clothes are just filthy dirty and our feet are, are, are full of grime and dirt. We've walked in refuse and it's, we're, we're just filthy. And the guards say, you cannot come into the presence of the, of, of the king unless you're totally clean. Okay. So, so we have these stations. You, you have to take a bath behind this door. Then you have to get your hair cut here and you have to have a shave here and then a manly manicure here and a manly pedicure here and then we'll give you some lotions to make you smell good. So, 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 so that's what the medieval church taught. You got to do this, this, and this, and this, and this, and then maybe you get in. Again, it's the, it's the thing. That's the way Luther was raised. And so Luther's problem would be this. He said, so I take a bath, but between taking a bath and getting my hair cut, sin clings to me. I cannot measure up. I just can't do it. There's none righteous, no, not one. What do I do? So in between getting a haircut and a shave, sin clings to me. And, and then and I, I could never be clean enough to go in. That's called, that's called righteousness slowly given or infused. Conversely, the gospel says this. They look at you and your grime and your dirt and your grease and your foul smell but they take this beautiful robe and they put the robe upon you. And they said, now you can go in the presence of the king. And the robe is the work of Christ done on the cross 
as your substitute. You don't bring anything to it. The only thing we bring to our salvation is grime and dirt and sweat and feet that need to be manicured. And see, that, that, that's, that's the beauty of the gospel. But, but let me say this. See, that, that's called imputation, freely given, freely given. And my, my heart, my heart is spring-loaded to believe I've got to do things to be made right with God. It's just the way we're raised. That's our culture. That's the air we breathe. In fact, I was, I was kind of kidding with people. I'm not really kidding. I said, I want a dog, but we're not going to get one because we, we're not home enough. We're gone a lot. And, but I really want a dog. It's kind of my frustration. I want a, I want a Labrador, a British, uh, English Labrador. I think they're great dogs. Anyway, if I got a dog, if you get a dog, I would encourage you to name him or her alone. Alone. Or, or, or name him or her imputation. Man, your neighbors will think you're weird, but that's okay. The reason being is you need to remember every day you're saved by Christ alone, through grace alone, by faith alone, to the glory of God alone, as we sit under the Bible as our authority alone. We need to realize that, that your, Christ's righteousness has not been gradually given to you, but has been imputed to you. Boom. We've got to understand the gospel. We've got to learn it every day. Now, it's October the 1st. It's a beautiful day. It's a beautiful day. With, with, with fall in Charleston comes the Coastal Carolina Fair. Many of you go to the Coastal Carolina Fair. So I'm going to use that as an illustration. Let's say this year, in honor of an American who died this week, it is taken over by a different group, and it's called the Coastal Carnal Fair in honor of Hugh Hefner, the Coastal Carnal Fair. And, and, and so they say, you know, instead of, you know, livestock, we're going to have all types of perversions there, and we're going to glorify immorality, and we're going to glorify this lifestyle and that lifestyle, and we're going to have all these things going on. And, and we would say, as a church, we would say, don't even go close to Ladson. We would probably have elders at the, at the exit taking pictures of any cars that went by to make sure people weren't there from our church going to the coastal carnal fair. It's, it's, it's because because it's, just, it's horrible. And, and, you know, really, if you read the life of, of Hugh Hefner, I mean, th that type of lifestyle, the, the returns are pitiful. It's just pitiful. It's, it's so sorrowful. So we would, we would raise every every flag of please, please don't go close to, don't go there. Don't go there. In fact, if you're going to Columbia, go by way of Florence. Don't go there. Conversely, if uh, the next month there was a movement, uh, a, a get-together in downtown Charleston called the Self-Esteem Weekend. And, and they had speakers like Tony Robbins or Neil Walsh or Oprah Winfrey. And their whole thesis was, you're the center of the universe. You are unique and wonderful. There's no one like you. You're the master of your fate. You're the captain of your soul. If it's going to be, it's up to you. It's all about you. And you determine 
what is truth. You determine what God is. You determine who God is. You define reality. You are unique. You are a snowflake. Now, we would say, yeah, I'll say to me, that is more dangerous than the coastal carnal fair. Because the coastal carnal fair, you, you see the end result of those, that lifestyle. You do. It's horrible. But this self-esteem is up to me. It's all about me. I earn my way. I do this. That's the air we breathe and the Kool-Aid we drink. And that is one million miles from the gospel of grace. So I need to know the gospel of grace. Another quote by Luther. This is from a book entitled The Freedom of a Christian. And I, I, I didn't take any words out because I want, you, I want you to hear what he's saying. Luther could be a cr pretty crusty guy, okay? He was pretty crusty. Anyway. He says, is not this a joyous exchange that the rich, noble, pious bridegroom of Christ takes this poor, despised, wicked little whore in marriage, redeems her of all evil and adorns her with all of his goods. He says, he takes a wicked, fallen woman, that's us, and adorns her with his beauty, adorns her with his goodness. Then he says later in the quote, since Christ has filled our needs, we can serve our neighbor in his wants and for his betterment. That's beautiful. I read that and I say, you know, the gospel frees me to live outside of myself. You see, if, if I believe, listen, if I believe that what I do, if I'm an observant Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, whatever, Jehovah's Witness, Mormon, if, if I believe that what I do earns God's favor, then I am introspective, I'm self-consumed, potentially, potentially self-consumed. I'm thinking about well, what, what do I got to do to do this and to do that and do that. And, and, and to, to, to me, it's, it, 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 but, but if I really believe that I'm saved by faith alone through the work of Christ alone, by his grace alone, and I am in Christ and I am loved and I've been clothed in all that Christ is for me, it lets me get out of myself. There's a very dear woman that I knew for years and she's in heaven now and she, she's a wonderful woman. Uh, I really, really enjoyed her. I've enjoyed her children and her children's children. I've had the privilege of knowing them. One day I was talking to this dear woman and one of her children was going through a very difficult time and she was grieving over it as a godly mother does. And um, I, I said something like, well, you know, God's got to work in their hearts, or God's got to have grace, and something like that, something you, something, I don't know. And she said something under her breath, breath that really struck me and has really been with me and made me think a lot. She said this, she said, yes, that's true, but she said, your children are your final report card. She said that under her breath. I mean, it wasn't a declaration, it was kind of a, a thought as she walked away, and I thought a lot about that. 
through the years. And, and, uh, and, and, and I'm, I'm sure that if we had sat down, she would have said, well, I, that was an overstatement. But, but listen, if my children are my final report card, I am undone. I'm filled with shame. Because my children are not perfect, especially the older of the two. Um, if being a dad is my final report card, I crash and burn. I am not, I was not a perfect father. If my marriage is my final report card, I'm undone. My marriage is not perfect. I'm not a perfect husband. Close. If being a pastor is my final report card, you see, see, if, if my final report card is Jesus and his freely given forgiveness by the cross, I'm okay. I'm okay. See, that is the gospel of grace. Like a hymn, I, call, I mentioned this hymn a couple weeks ago. I think like, I've been singing these hymns in my mind. And a guy named Augustus Toplady said, um, not the labors of my hands could fulfill thy law's demands. Could my tears, uh, no respite, no, could my you know, tears forever flow. All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. You, you've got to do it, Lord. I've got to see the beauty and the grandeur of the gospel of, of, of grace. So, so, so once again, the glorious and strong reality of Christ takes away the arguments of the world and the arguments which begin with man and end with man. And it shows me the wonder of Christ. So let me very quickly rehearse with you what the apostle says here. Just four things. He says, he says understand this, verse 13. He says, when you were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with Christ. He doesn't say when you were severely injured or you were in a coma or you were limping. He says you were dead. When you were dead, God spoke his word to you. Ephesians 2, when you were dead in your transgressions and your sins, God made you alive in Christ. You were dead. If you're a believer, you were, you were dead. God calls dead people to life by the cross. There are people sitting here today who are, who are not believers, and God is saying, believe upon me by the cross of Jesus. He's calling dead people to life. You're dead. Secondly, he forgave our sins. Verse 13. It says, he has forgiven us our trespasses. Boom, forgiven. Cleansed. Then he says this, I think it's a higher term, he's canceled the debt, past, present, and future. Next verse, he says he's, he's number three, he's, he's canceled the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. 
So he's, he's forgiven us. He's canceled our debts. Past, present, future. Wiped out. Because our report card is Jesus. There are people here today. There are people here today living under incredible pressure to perform, to look a certain way, to weigh a certain amount, to make a certain grade. And there's nothing wrong with trying to be successful. That's wonderful. To be in great shape, to look like they're 25 when they're 50, it's not going to work. It just doesn't work. To have the perfect marriage and the perfect kids and the perfect home. I mean, it, it, that's a horrible sword of Damocles to walk under. Behold the goodness of Jesus. Behold, your sins are forgiven, your debt is canceled. Behold, he calls dead people to life. This is so much fun. But anyway, number four. And you have union with Christ. Union with Christ is a theological term that means it's something that began in eternity past when God loved us with an everlasting love and it will never end. When we're in Christ. Listen to some of the words about our union with Christ. He, he says, verse, verse 9, for in him, the hopefulness of the deity lives, and you have been filled in him. You've been filled in him. Verse 11, in him, in Christ, you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands when he changed your heart. Verse 12, you've been buried with him in baptism. And you're also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. This is, he says, he's, God made you, verse 13, God made you alive together with him. Behold the greatness of Christ. Our union with him. And that, that's why Luther, Luther, I think Luther's favorite book, he said his favorite book, was a book called The Bondage of the Will. And, and he says, you know, the beauty of grace alone is, is if, if we bring anything to our salvation, if God does this, but we do this, if, if, then, then what we do can be undone. But if we're saved by grace alone, by God speaking into our heart, by the Holy Spirit, through the Word of God, and He raises dead people to life, if God does it, then what God does cannot be undone. You can have assurance of salvation. You can be joyful. I think He's right. So there's a, not only are our sins forgiven, but we are in Christ and we're adopted into His family and we're, we're, we're embraced by the living God. There's one thing to have your sins forgiven, but to be embraced by the Father. There's a story in the Old Testament. There is a man named David, with whom you're familiar. David had, has just become king uh, of, of Israel. David was hunted and hounded, and uh, the king that he had served, a guy named Saul, was trying, trying to kill David for years. And David's, uh, this man that tried to kill him had a son named Jonathan. And Jonathan was David's best friend. They were great friends. Jonathan was such a guy that he came to David one day and he says, David, you know, I'm supposed to be the king, but one day we all know you're going to be king and I'll be your right hand, but you, you are God's man. You're God's man. And it says, Jonathan loved David, or, or, and David loved Jonathan as he loved himself. They had a, a wonderful relationship. 
And then the kingdom fell apart because Saul was an ungodly man and Jonathan in collateral damage was killed in battle defending his father. So David becomes king. He brings the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. He, he, he vanquishes all the enemies of Israel. He routs them and the kingdom is secure and God comes to David and says, David, there will always be someone from your line sitting on the throne. David says, whoa. And that's fulfilled in Jesus, our Messiah. But in the midst of all this, David looks around. The kingdom is settled. The dust is settled. David's in power. He's incredibly gifted. He is the man. And he says this. He said, says to some of the people at court, is there anybody alive from Jonathan's family in the present context. And they said, well, oh, great king, there is, there, there's, there's one child. And his name is Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth is, unfortunately, he's crippled in both his feet. He was dropped, and he's really paralyzed from the waist down. Uh, and you see, in, in, in an agricultural warrior culture, that is a tough way to live. You didn't have programmers and technological people in those days. You were either an agricultural person or you were either a warrior. So that was hard. So he's, Mephibosheth's father and grandfather are killed. He's in hiding because they tried, his grandfather tried to kill David. And not only that, but he's a crippled in both of his feet. He's lost his land. He's lost his property. He's lost everything. And this is what happens. And this is so beautiful. And David said, bring him into me. And they brought him in, and David stands from his royal throne and says, Mephibosheth. And the young man answers, behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, do not fear, for, for I show you kindness. I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. Hear that? And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said to King David, what is your servant that I sh you should sh show such regard for a dead dog such as I? He goes on and says, so Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, and he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. See, in the gospel of grace, the living God looks at this Mephibosheth, and he says, I'm going to love you because you're clothed in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, you're lame in both feet. And yes, your assessment is right. You are a dead dog. But I love you because I love you for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I love you for the sake of your elder brother, Jesus Christ. See, that, 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 that is the gospel of grace. Now, now very quickly, and then I'm going to close. Okay. Three things. To, to me, when you get the gospel, I, I just, I love this stuff. When you get the gospel, number one, it awakens worship. 
It awakens worship. You want to worship. You, you want to praise God. You, you say, um, I mean, this, we're going to be singing a hymn. It's an old hymn by a guy named Rob Lowry who died in 1880. It says, what can wash away my sin? Answer, nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. And another stanza goes, this is all my righteousness, nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and peace, nothing but the blood of Jesus. I've just been saying, Lord, thank you for the goodness of the cross. It awakens worship. Secondly, it awakens joy. So to me, the Reformation could be a fight for my joy. That there, there, see, if I believed that there was just some kind of a balanced scale and I had to work hard to gradually have God's forgiveness poured into my heart, I would be despairing. I'm telling you, the best hour of my best day that I've ever lived needed the forgiving blood of Christ. Much less the worst hour of my life today. So, so, so if, if I really believe that, that, that my salvation is secure and strong and fixed, I'm telling you, I, it makes me happy. It really does. It gives me joy. Conversely, if I felt like I've got to work and work and work, I, 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 just, I, I just can't get there. The same guy wrote another hymn, and it's kind of a hymn it's entitled, how can, how can I Keep From Singing? It says this, the peace of Christ makes fresh my heart, a fountain ever springing. All things are mine since I am his. How can I keep from singing? That's just simple. See, if, if I have union with Jesus, how, how can I keep from singing? And the third thing is, is, is usefulness. To me, if, if it's all about what I do, I'm going to be looking inside. If it's all about what Christ has done for me, it frees me up to get outside of myself. You know, the question is, do you measure up? What's the answer? No, you don't. I'm sorry. What can you do to earn the favor of God? You cast yourself on the cross of Jesus. It's really not what we can do is what he's done for us. There's a little statement in, the, in a book called First Corinthians where Paul's talking about glorifying God with your body. And he just says this. It's a simple little statement. He says, you've been bought with a price, therefore honor God with your body. It's just simple. You've been bought with a price, honor God with your body, with the totality of all that you are. That's it. The gospel. Let's pray. Lord, it is, it is such a joy and a privilege to trumpet the forgiveness of sins by Christ alone, applied to our hearts by grace alone, and exhibited by faith alone. Help us not to forget that. Help us, Lord, give us grace to speak that to others who are caught up in this, I've got to do this, I've got to earn, I've got this balance scale in the sky, and they never can get there. Thank you that we just rejoice in the forgiveness of sin. And I pray for those who are here today who do not understand, don't get it. 
They just don't get it. I, I pray that by your grace they would see the beauty of sins forgiven by the work of Christ on the cross for them. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I pray that as that happens and as we discovered afresh, that we would say with Martin Luther of old, I felt as if I had entered the doors of paradise. So thank you for that. Have your way in our lives, Jesus, I pray. Amen.